back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute, also hosted on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras, and I am joined, as ever, by the usual suspects here with Nathan Oblak and Dr. Joe Boot. Guys, it's good to uh, see you again. Good to be here. Good to be with you, Ryan. Terrific. Well, as uh, as we mentioned last week, uh, we're persisting on with our mini-series in Aquinas. Uh, we, we gave an introduction to to Aquinas, his, uh, his times, and some of the uh, broad brushstrokes of his thought and emphasis last week. Today, uh, we begin a, uh, a short look backwards to his own influence, or his own influences, and uh, that uh, it'll be no surprise that that starts with uh, Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher. So we're going to introduce uh, Aristotle, uh, some of his own thought, and how he came to be an influence on Aquinas today. And that this uh, this episode will serve as a, a bit of a prelude to m- much of Aquinas's thought, uh, which he which he adopts from Aristotle on the nature of man, and expanding on that uh, the nature of man and the state. So that so that's where we're going uh, over the next couple of weeks, and we're looking forward to uh, to taking that uh, that tour. Before we dive into today's subject, uh, Nathan, what do we need to know about uh, the activities of the Ezra Institute? Yeah, well, first, um, I'd like to welcome any new listeners uh, who first heard about us last week at the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. Yes. Uh, just happened over Knoxville. the weekend. That's right. Knoxville, Tennessee. Good to interact uh, with a lot of uh, like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ at the conference. And uh we met a ton of new people. Uh, we had a book table there at the event, and uh, it was you know people there from all over the U.S., uh, which is typical for for a fight, laugh, feast event. Mm. So it was great to to meet people from across the country and uh, share a little bit about what we do as a ministry. And uh, of course, we mentioned this podcast. So uh, if you first heard of us uh, there at the conference, uh, thank you for tuning in today. Uh, we certainly hope you become uh, a regular listener. Uh, and, and that this, this would become a valuable resource for you. And, um, yeah, and for you folks new to our ministry, uh, along with this podcast, uh, there are several other facets to our ministry. One of them being, uh, and we talk about them a lot here on the program, but, uh, is our in-person residential training programs. Uh, and at these programs, we, what we do is we provide, uh, teaching and training, uh, in, in our core material, our core subjects, which deal with, uh, biblical worldview, cultural apologetics, and reformational philosophy. Not Aristotelian, but reformational philosophy. And um, we've got programs for uh, various demographics, young professionals, uh, pastors, teenagers. And uh, most recently, we've added a program for all adults. And we've called it the Christianity and Culture Colloquium. And that's the program we're running next week in Southern Ontario, Canada. And if you go to our website, you can have a look at uh, all the all of the programs we offer. 
and uh, and and much of what we've got planned for next year. So that's EzraInstitute.com. And uh, if you head there, you'll you'll have a you can have a look at our uh, other resources as well. Like we have our online lectures, articles, blogs. Um, of course, you can go there to uh, Ezra Press and pick up our written resources, uh, Mission of God, Ruler of Kings, various other uh, popular resources, many of them written by Dr. Joe Boot. So again, head to our website, EzraInstitute.com, check out our training programs, check out our resources, and uh, we hope you continue to tune into this podcast. Right on. Okay, thanks, Nate. Okay, guys. Aquinas and Aristotle today. So it, uh, I think I said that it, it come as no surprise to anyone who's a little bit familiar that Aquinas's main influence was uh, Aristotle. And Aristotle, just to uh, just to dive in for some of you, this will be a refresher. Uh, Aristotle was a uh, ancient Greek philosopher. His dates are from 384 to 322 BC. He is a, uh, a student of Plato, and he is, uh, he's well known as being the, uh, the tutor of, a, uh, of an adolescent Alexander the Great. He was, uh, he was his, uh, his personal tutor. And one of the, uh, one of the differences, or one of the, one of the reasons why Aristotle is still uh, remembered, still influential, is that especially today we've got uh, we've got philosophy as a discipline broken up into many different uh, discrete streams and branches. So you've got philosophy, uh, philosophy of history, of politics, of economics, of science, of other whatever other disciplines, and you've got people who specialize in those uh, those disciplines and subdisciplines. Aristotle's uh, range is just is so vast. So he made he made pioneering work in all areas of philosophy, as well as in science and in mathematics. Uh, and in large measure, in large measure, uh, thanks to Aquinas's uh, recapitulation of him and his thought. Uh, Aristotelianism became the intellectual foundation of what's now come to be known as medieval Western scholasticism. And Aristotle effectively invented uh, the field of formal logic. Uh, he, he was the first to, to formulate the syllogism uh, in technical vocabulary and to, to provide uh, the necessary conditions for what, it, what constitutes a valid syllogism. And a syllogism is just is a uh, a series of statements uh, in logic. Uh, the uh, probably one of the most common examples is to say uh, uh, first premise A, premise B, therefore conclusion C. So all men are mortal. Premise A. Socrates is a man. Premise B. Therefore conclusion C. Socrates is mortal. And that's. Uh, if you've never heard of syllogism, that's that's one of the more more common modes of argumentation and demonstration. That's still with us today. It was Aristotle who first sort of formulated the uh, the rules that uh, that govern the syllogistic argumentation and logic. 
And anyway, that so you could you could and many have written books on Aristotle, on his life, on his biography and his uh, his thought. But these are some of the things that he is best known for. And specifically, uh, Joe, I'm hoping you can take us today into uh, sort of what it uh, what it was about Aristotle that uh, that really captured Aquinas and that he wanted to uh, to bring forward and implement in a uh, in a Christian a more Christian society. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, that's a helpful um, opening salvo there, um, just to orient people to. Uh, Aristotle. Um, I think f- for us, as we said last week, you know, the, the the reason that we want to do this and the reason that we want people to <clears throat> get a handle on this is that uh, uh, philosophers, and as you get, especially as you go back to the, the classical world, um, they weren't just interested in language games for their own sake. Um, they were interested in the social life of human beings and the political life of human beings. And one of Aristotle's most famous books is, of course, politics. Um, And uh, in many respects, the thinking of the the Greek classical philosophers culminates in their idea of the state, basically of human society and its importance and its significance. And so... um, what we want to do is indicate to people in this discussion at this point that we're going somewhere very concrete with this. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, there, there's a real, there's a really important reason why this discussion is so, is so significant and is so important because that's what these ancient Greeks were writing about. They were writing about uh, the, the social the political life of human beings as the culmination of what it means to be human. The whole idea of human beings as political animals, of course, even in social relationships, it was Aristotle who famously referred to slaves as human tools, living tools, basically, living tools, really less than human in that sense. They were living tools. So Aristotle's concern, as we think about him, and you've mentioned one of the most commonly um, understood aspects of of Aristotle um, that is still culturally acceptable um (laughs) his sort of syllogistic uh logic you know arranging major and minor premises with a conclusion and so um the sort of formal principles of logic trying to systematize them um and certainly that was part of what aristotle was doing but fundamentally aristotle was interested in the justification of uh the existing elitism of greek society um, and of constructing a view of reality that would allow um, those uh, that way of life of an elite the intellectual life of an elite the whole idea of the philosopher kings to to persist and to keep a structure of slave master relationship now you might say the listener might say oh this sounds very critical theory Uh, um, this sounds um, uh, like we're we're utilizing some um, contemporary tool of of, of criticism, um, but actually, no. This is something that was um, harped on about quite a lot by Nietzsche, 
and is is actually a reality that very often when we're looking at a system of thought um we do have to consider the the social and political life into which that system is being um perpetuated what it's uh, where that system is being taught and um think about what the primary interests uh, were of the 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 philosophers at that time of course we do need to take into account i mean what's the measure of t- truth there is a criteria of truth for for understanding whether or not aristotle is right or wrong we're not dismissing that but it's important that as we engage in this discussion about aristotle and aquinas we do understand that there's a tremendous contemporary relevance to this because this was the cradle of western civilization this is where the uh, the 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 thinking was being done um that has influenced you know generations of of western thinkers about social political and cultural life and we're the podcast for cultural reformation so we're interested in that and we're interested in the way in which those ideas have of the classical world from heathen pagan philosophers who did not know christ have influenced and shaped the thinking in the west and the thinking of many christians so aristotle basically makes an attempt to to save the greek city state from collapse by suggesting that uh, a um, a principle of order for want of a better term a print a, a law order or what doiverd uh, herman doiverd with the Christ, great christian philosopher um called a law idea to find it to locate it as imminent within creation so you mentioned his teacher plato plato had the had this idea that there were there was a, a world of forms a transcendent world of abstract forms ideas which was the source of order and structure for uh, reality um and aristotle um alters that he doesn't reject the whole idea of form and matter as the essence of that order so plato's idea of forms and matter with form being the higher principle and matter being a principle of imperfection so he aristotle doesn't throw that overboard but what he says is no forget forget this uh, an idea of some abstract uh, eternal realm of ideas up here um in the way that plato had envisioned them but rather consider that the the law order is completely imminent it's diffused through all the individual objects of nature it's not hidden up there somewhere in the heavens it's diffused right here so you've got this transfer of these ideas as the the those forms which form the shapeless matter so that was the idea of the greeks as you had this chaotic matter and then these forms these ideas somehow gave shape and form to individual things so what makes a tree a tree a house a house a, um a, a man a man an antelope an antelope is this interaction of form and matter plato said they were transcendent some way up in the heavens uh, aristotle says no they they they're bound together and the forms determine the formless matter into an individual object so the so Joe, Plato, just just to clarify Joe yeah. Plato viewed forms as being transcend rooted in the transcendent uh, where Aristotle viewed them as rooted in the imminent yeah 
Is that correct? Exactly. Yes, they're to be found very much within those things. So he would have said that the the form of the human being, uh, the rational soul, um, with the 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 reality of the material person constitutes together um, a substance. So, in other words, what gives individual identity to things within creation is this correlation of form and matter and for 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 aristotle those are found imminent within those objects themselves not mm -hmm. in in a transcendent way right so the, the point i want to make there fundamentally is that as 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 ryan introduced this that the often you hear those names together don't you plato aristotle that whole mm -hmm. teacher student relationship i wanted to mention uh, this because aristotle accepts pretty much without question this this distinction, which is so important as we move through in the next few weeks, this discussion, this distinction between form and matter. So Aristotle doesn't uh, criticize this um, radical distinction between form and matter. Uh, that was basic to Plato's idea. Um, and just like Plato, he sees matter um, that is the material stuff of reality as a principle of disorder into which this idea of form. So you've got this, um, this, this duality that he sees as basic to nature itself, form, matter. And um, along with that, uh, and this is how oftentimes, you know, the philosophical abstract idea then becomes concretized in social and societal life. He envisioned this that a principle of rule and subordination um, was basic to, to nature um, in toto. So um, the, the, uh, the, the whole idea of rule and subordination appears in this idea of the imposing of form and structure onto this chaotic matter that kind of resists to some degree that form. So, um, whereas Plato saw the existence of forms up here as separate and distinct um, for, apart from matter, Ar Aristotle says, no, they appear as two aspects of the existence of nature that is all around us, form, matter. Um, and Joe, just, just in that, and, and, and I'd love it if you could speak to this, but maybe our listeners pick up on this as well. But in that, I, I almost feel that Aristotelian thought poses a bit more danger thinking of the state specifically over platonic thought would you would that be a fair statement yeah i mean as we tease out the implications of this and i think uh, next week we're going to specifically see how aquinas's attempt to synthesize aristotle as view of human society in the state with christianity leads to some very uh, troubling and disturbing and dangerous consequences um you know, I mean, Plato uh, uh, in his Republic, he doesn't escape many of the same conclusions as Aristotle, um, because all of the time it's human reason that's being deified, the autonomous idea of human reason and the philosopher kings who all um, who are who are born in a, in a certain sense to to rule over human society. But in terms of this principle of a of a law order for creation. This was the fundamental distinction between Plato and Aristotle. And I think Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, 
clearly over time comes to believe that Aristotle is easier to, for whatever reason, decides that it's going to be Aristotle that he is going to employ to try and create a um, a Christian view, a Christian philosophy, um, and a Christian view of society, uh, rather than um, a Platonic emphasis. And we'll, we, we can come to that in a minute. Um, but for, for a variety of reasons, Aquinas decides that it's it's Aristotle's um, vision of form, matter, of nature, that is more amenable to um, uh, the, the the Christian view. Um, but this this whole relationship of form imposing on matter is kind of then seen as a structure for society where uh, the higher rule the subordinate. So you have actually this perpetuation of a master slave understanding of society as purely natural. That's part of nature. That's that's the way things are by nature, just as form orders chaotic matter. So uh, the um, the truly rational, the truly reasonable um, elites must rule over um, the others as as um, living tools. So that would be the sort of first and, and most basic premise of, of Aristotle, this form, matter, understanding of nature. And if you're asking where's God in all of that, um, well, the, really, from a philosophical standpoint, their idea of the divine resolves into pantheism. It's an impersonal principle of reason, their idea of the divine. There's no idea of a personal, relational creator God uh, who is distinct from his creation um, in in Aristotle. I mean, sometimes people have tried to say, well, there was some sort of monotheism in 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 ancient Greece um, that could be debated, but 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 not a personal God recognizable in any way with the God of Scripture, but a much a pantheistic conception of the divine. Right. So, Joe, that that comment right there has me thinking back to last week's episode where both you and Ryan used the language of um, Aquinas being commissioned by the church to baptize Aristotle. Why would the church ask this of of Thomas with Aristotle's view of the divine in mind? Wouldn't they see this as an impossible task at the outset? Well, that jumps us forward a little bit, I think, um, but it's a it's a good um, it's a good question to ask. Um, fundamentally, there was a feeling that uh, it was more than a feeling; it was a recognition that the Arabs, the Islamic world, um, had been uh, had recovered, had discovered actually by this point all of the works of Aristotle, and they were they were using. Aristotle's work to try and justify the Islamic conception of God, and they were trying to use ancient Greek resources to justify Islam, um, and employing various arguments from um, the the ancient Greeks, uh, and even employing some of their ideas about human society. So there was a kind of Islamic resourcement from um, Aristotle, because what had happened is Christian scribes who'd been taken in by Islamic conquests over many centuries um, had been uh, translating um, and preserving, copying 
um, the, the works of, of, um, of Aristotle. And um, so they had become widely available in that part of the world. And the church recognized actually that there were two threats. There was the, because in Aristotle, they also recognized that here was a pagan philosopher. His works have been rediscovered. They've been uncovered. They're being discussed. They're being debated. And um, that because he has this sort of complete system, if you like, of knowledge and of reality and of society, this represented a kind of pagan threat to the to the medieval world of, of Christendom in its own right. And then on the other hand, you had Islam using all these Aristotelian resources. And so it was it was less an issue of um, uh, thinking, well, Aristotle had the right view of God and more of this notion that, look, we've got to, you know, grab hold of Aristotle for ourselves now because uh, it's a, Aristotelianism as it stands is a threat, whether in its pagan, purely pagan form or its Islamic formulation. So we need somebody to take Aristotle and do a, do a translation for the church, do a synthesis for Christianity, um, try and, you know, uh, salvage here what people are drawn to and synthesize it with the Christian faith. And um, basic to Aristotle's um, idea of, of cause, um, I mean, it was drawn partly from the early Ionians. So there was a quest for um, a first principle. So there was the idea of there must be a material cause of things. Um, then the Pythagorean philosophers in Greece were looking for the, um, the formal cause of things. So an emphasis on numbers, for example. Um, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus was looking for an efficient cause of things. Was it fire? Was it uh, air, etc.? And then Socrates had been looking for this final cause. And so Aristotle, in this sort of complete system that I'm talking about, um, basically says we need to bring these various causes uh, together in a fourfold theory of causation. And then he says, now we've got to apply this theory about reality to human beings. Um, that, that, uh, that, that the human being... Um, from from some kind of internal law that remember I talked about that imminent idea of form some kind of imminent law a law of their nature um, propels impelled by a, a law of nature they man is a predetermined type so what is it to be a human being well by an internal the technical term is entelechy by this internal imminent law um, man is a species is, is essentially a type and that's what distinguishes human beings from other types is that the form imposed on the matter um produces a different a different type uh so what's important about the human person is that they are a, the individual is that they're a member of a type not that they're individuals created in god's image but they're members of a type and in in this um perspective um, the type, what makes the human type unique is that it's body, soul, and mind. And human beings are distinguished from all the other beings by mind or reason. And this is very interesting here because this idea of mind or reason, this idea of reason, it enters uh, from the outside 
into the soul germ, which is transmitted from the father to the child. So there is a soul germ, and into that germ from the outside comes mind or reason. Um, and that soul germ, which contains the mind then or reason, is transmitted from, from the parent to the child um, and is supposedly unaffected by the death of the body. So now you can begin to see, ah, how did some of these ideas, through a synthesis with Christianity, give us some of the modern soul, body, um, uh, heavenly, earthly, radical dualism and, 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 uh, and separation? But this, founded on this idea of law and causation, Aristotle applies these ideas to the human person. The human person is a certain type where form imposes itself on a chaotic matter. Um, there's, there's body, soul, and mind, or reason. Reason is in the soul germ, comes in from the outside, and then is transmitted parent to child. Um, and this idea of reason then, which is so critical to understanding Aquinas, um, which he gets very much from Aristotle, is that this, this idea of the human person, man is defined, human beings in their essence, their true nature, their highest good is reason. Reason. It's the, it's the idea of not the so-called lower appetites or lower desires, but man's reasoning that supposedly is what is distinctive um, about him. So man it must becomes, strive. It becomes foundational, Joe, in other words. Yeah. The reason becomes foundational. Exactly. The, 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 he must strive after his good, his full humanity, and that's his rational faculty. So if you want to be really human, tr to be truly human is the, is the development of this, of this rational faculty of man's reasoning. So you can begin to see now again how, well, how would you then view the manual workers in society? How would you view the slave? Well, kind of less than human, um, living tools. Uh, or Aristotle's famous um, uh, statement about uh, about slaves. So part of what Aristotle is doing, remember, because he's a fallen, sinful human being, is justifying the life of leisure of the the ruling elites. Right? He's he's justifying this um, this ruling class of Greece, grounding it in a doctrine of the superiority of reason over the various other passions. Um, and that distinguishes what's truly human from what's really kind of, uh, animal, um, or lesser. Um, and so you've got there the, you know, the implicit idea of the autonomy of man's, uh, reason as the foundation of everything, somehow man's reason participating in divinity. Cause remember that, that, uh, that reason, that mind comes from the outside into the soul germ. And somehow then is participating in divinity through reason. And then he moves on from there, from this idea of man, then to um, a political vision of the polis where, well, how does man realize his reason? How does he, how does he reach his full humanity and the full development of his rational faculty? Well, of course, through the polis, through political life, through civilization, through education, through being a political animal. Um, and, uh, the significance then of the individual is only there as this carrier of a type. The individual is the carrier of a type. That type is man. 
Um, and man's true good is then realized only in the full manifestation of man's reason, which is in the political community, in citizenship, in the, the state, in the life of the polis. Um, so you've, you've gone from the, 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 uh, this basic idea of law, form and matter to the idea of man being, the, remember the idea of man, not the individual human being, but the idea of man being eternal, immutable, and necessary, whereas you and I, and, and Ryan there, as individuals, we're temporary, we're accidental, we're simply partaking in the universal form of man. So the individual participates in the universal form, and that's what gives us significance and identity, not our uh, individuality as such. Hmm. Well, and Joe, I, I hope this comment doesn't take us too far off track, but as you were talking earlier about, um, you know, the church during the time of Aquinas looking to the Greeks and really wanting a, I think you called it a complete philosophy. Um, so they attempt this synthesis with Greek thought. And I, I can't help but think, isn't that so much like today uh, with the church trying to think through a principle of justice and rather than looking to God's law and scripture, uh, we start developing these Marxist ideas to, to form some kind of notion of justice. Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting point too, especially uh, the question of justice, because Plato and Aristotle's idea of justice, very much like the modern conceptions of justice, social justice, Marxist justice, are essentially formal. Um, that is, um, uh, justice is the city-state and and the social relationships. So, um, actually, in their case, the existing social relationships. So, rather than saying, "Well, there's a law from God," and which brings us into the problem of the modern church, um, and we've got special revelation from the living God um, who has revealed Himself. Um, and manifested himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have, we're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice, which is revealed to us in scripture and made manifest in God's law word. Um, instead, we have, again, abstract, formal ideas of justice um, that actually uh, are not concerned in the end with right relationships between people. They're about uh, individuals. They're about abstract groups and the politics of the state and imposing a kind of political ideal on everybody in the name of, of social justice. So you're right in identifying that um, these problems, you know, some have said that, you know, Western thought is footnotes to Plato. I guess you could say that, that, that it's also footnotes to Aristotle. Um, the, um, it was Aristotle who actually said, and I quote, the man who first invented the state was the greatest of benefactors. Um, the state for Aristotle was natural, and it was the most important of human institutions. And we've seen the rise again, in many respects, of that idea as modern culture has turned back towards paganism. Um this Aristotelian idea that man is going to realize himself, discover his true nature, discover his true rational humanity only within the state, um, has uh, has has uh, revived in our time because of our abandonment of Christianity. 
Um, and uh, we've, we find ourselves increasingly today with an Aristotelian um, conception of the state. Remember, the state is for Aristotle due to man's reason. So whoever was the benefactor, so he doesn't see the state as ordained of God or part of God's creation order for uh, reality and historical development. Um, no, it's the invention of man's reason, and it's a necessary expression of man's reason. So the good of the state and the good of the individual are the same thing. And don't we see that again today? We've heard, we actually heard it argued by Christians, by Christian pastors even, in the last two or three years, that the, the good of the state is the good of the individual. That's Aristotle. That, that's, not, that's not the Bible. Um, so... Um, the state is man's destination in and through which his um, his telos, his end, remember that four ideas of causation, his end is truly realized. And um, next week we'll talk about what the state was really going to do for man, why it was so necessary, why it was the manifestation of, of man's reason. And um, we'll, we'll talk about the relationship there to um, to Aquinas and how Aquinas developed that, but I think probably there we've said we've said enough about um, the the Aristotle and this whole idea of a, a type. Let me quote um, just Cochrane uh, about uh, this the fundamental error here. He says the radical error of classicism is to suppose that the history of mankind can be properly apprehended in terms applicable to the study of objects in nature, i.e. in the light of the conventional concepts of form and matter. In other words, he's saying, look, this is the, the great error of Aristotle and, and wherever these ideas went, is that you can understand human, the human story, you can understand history, you can understand reality if you just study man as an object of nature um, made up of form and matter. And that was fundamentally what Aristotle thought. There's form, there's matter. We can understand all of reality fundamentally uh, in terms of those core ideas. And um, much more could be said, of course, about Aristotle, but we probably should get on to the connection to Aquinas in these last mm -hmm. few minutes here. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say, Joe, as we kind of get uh, toward the end of the episode, of course, this series is on Thomas Aquinas, not on Aristotle. So... As you describe a lot of these Aristotelian ideas about the human person and the state, were these ideas all carried forward by Thomas? Did he reject some of them? Um, mm -hmm. give, give us some clarity there, Joe. So I think probably what's most important uh, initially to say, and we've last week we expressed some sympathy with um, Aquinas and his project, and I, I would want to start in a certain sense, there again, um, you ask the important question, why did the church, you know, want to do this? And I, and I, and I gave a, a, a couple of reasons why. Um, I think if we put the, the, um, the best possible uh, lens on as we look at this, this was an apologetic and, and, uh, and I think a missionary enterprise um, in many respects for, uh, for uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, I'll say something in a moment about his early exposure to, to Aristotle, but um, the reality is, is that um, he, um, 
he actually wrote his most famous treatise, the uh, the Summa Contra Gentiles, his whole um, uh, treatise on the truth of the faith against the errors of the unbelievers. Um, he uh, he wrote actually that work at the request of a Dominican missionary who was working amongst the Muslims in Spain. So, a bit like Augustine's City of God was, you know, written in response to to Christians appealing to him to craft a response to those who were saying, "Look, Rome is collapsing, the, the empire is collapsing because of Christianity and because of our abandonment of the gods." Aquinas is is responding to a missionary uh, who said, you know, we've got this problem reaching the Muslims in Spain. You know, the Old Testament um, perhaps is persuasive for the Jews um, and uh, the New Testament is, um, uh, well, we can use it to try and persuade the heretics, but it's difficult. Um, But the Muslims don't accept the authority of the Bible. And so... um, Aquinas says, well, basically, then we have recourse to natural reason. Every every man has to give their assent to reason. So in certain sense, you know, we could say that the Bible is being marginalized. It's being reduced to a, to a lack of relevance with missionary work, work amongst the Islamists. Um, but you immediately you've got this implication there that somebody um, can change faith through rational arguments. So faith is not something there that is determining your thinking, as we would say at the Institute. But faith is something um, uh, that uh, can be just simply altered by a neutral reason that binds all men. So the Aquinas's project um at the beginning, I think, and when you look at some of his most important works, it's motivated out of several desires. One of them is certainly to defend uh, the Christian faith, as I said, to take Aristotle and uh, synthesize him with Christianity so that you kind of neutralize the threat of pagan philosophy. That was part of the idea. Now, on the other hand, we use Aristotle to, um, as a witnessing tool, effectively, to develop uh, a defense um, of the faith um, amongst, in particular, Muslims. Um, but there's a kind of double irony here because medieval Christians were actually indebted to the Arabs to some extent for their knowledge of Aristotle. And now you've got, in, certainly in the, in the, um, the Summa Contra, uh, Gentiles, the, you've got Islamic Aristotelian philosophy being attacked by Aquinas who's employing a Christian Aristotle. So there, there are some ironies here. Um, so it's not the case. I don't think we should start by saying that we treat Aquinas like we treat Aristotle. Aquinas is a genuine Christian. He's concerned about Christian culture. He's concerned about the life of the church. And he's concerned about giving an apologetic and and how do we uh, defend the faith and how do we reach Muslims and so on. So there's a lot of unintended consequences, and that's probably part of the driving force of your question. There are quite a lot of unintended consequences here. We don't want to suggest as an institute, well, Aquinas sets out to simply take paganism and baptize it as Christian, pass it off as Christianity. That that wasn't his intention, and he and he's working with the tools that he sees are available to him. And as we said last week, he's also been given a job description, you know, go and interpret Aristotle for the church. So he's trying to do that. Um, 
The problem is that um, in 1323, Aquinas is declared a saint. His work is a, is progressively not just his he, he's not just sainted, but his work is effectively steadily canonized by the church. Sixty six popes refer to his philosophy. Um, and um, Pope Leo XIII actually declared that all Roman Catholic philosophers, all the Roman Catholic theologians, all the educationalists had to follow the philosophy of the Doctor Angelicus. So this is part of the reason why, you know, we've got to spend a bit of time on this man, because um, this is the kind of influence that his thought begin began to have. It, it, the, the work of Aquinas is a synthesis philosophy. How do and it was self-consciously so. How do we synthesize the pagan philosopher, especially Aristotle, with Christianity? That was the project. And I think that the Thomists, the Thomists and the Neo-Thomists, they've got to admit this. That would be a good starting point of the discussion is this needs to be admitted uh, and um, acknowledged. Um, and some will say, well, you know, the what about the Reformed theologians? This is good old-fashioned Reformed orthodoxy. Well, we would certainly acknowledge that Reformed theology gave into this scholastic synthesis philosophy as well in large measure. And... Um, is actually the greatest threat to truly reformational thinking is this synthetic um, scholastic philosophy. Um, and, um, you know, I know that later in our mini-series, we're going to talk about the revival of this amongst um, the Reformed and Evangelicals today as they're casting about for a cultural vision um, and a way of responding in cultural life. But there is definitely an uncritical attitude for the most part to these foundations that have so permeated Roman Catholic theology, thereby Western theology. And of course, the later development of a Protestant scholasticism, um, especially after the Reformation. So one of the philosophers we talk about a little less um, in the Reformed tradition, Nathan, is... Uh, Vollenhoven, um, Hermann Doiverd's brother-in-law, and he actually quite helpfully um, divided uh, or, or sought to um, sketch in a general template the phases of Western philosophy. And he said there was a pre-synthesis period, and that went up to about 50 AD. And then there was a synthesis period, which takes us through to just just before the Reformation. So you've got pre-synthesis philosophy, which is not, uh, it's just about man's natural reason. That's the, the early Greek philosophers, the, um, the, um, the pre-Socratics and so on, uh, through to about AD 50 um, is this pre-synthesis period. After that, when you've got the pagans converting to Christianity, we enter this period of a synthesis where there's an attempt to wed Christianity to these pagan ideas. And then you've got the post-synthesis era, um, which really starts to break down around the time of the Renaissance, when the hold of the institutional church over cultural life in the West begins to radically weaken. Um, and uh, there's an attempt to shake free from this sort of nature-grace um, dualism of the synthesis era. And we could talk a bit more about that uh, another time. But um, this... Um, this uh, work of, of Aquinas um, was was really a genuine attempt to say how can we um, how can Christianity prevail, but also 
Nathan, how can the papal theocracy, how can the unified ecclesiastical culture of Christendom and the social arrangements that prevail, including, you know, some radical inequalities um, uh, and, and uh, you know, a, a treatment of women um, and, a, and a treatment of other people that, that they were wanting to, to, Aquinas was seeking to justify in the same way that, to, that Aristotle was justifying the slave-master relation. Aquinas had the things that he wanted to justify about the, the papal theocracy of the medieval period. And um, because we're starting with the positives, we won't emphasize a lot of the negatives uh, um, until later. Um, and we should also note, as I think Ryan pointed out uh, last week, that when we talk about Tom Thomism today and the legacy of Thomas Aquinas, um, there's basically three groups. I mean, and there's there's numerous offshoots, but there's essentially three groups. There are those who think that um, Aquinas' thinking is is good for all times and places without change. Then there's those who actually think, well, Aquinas actually anticipated um, modern thinking. It was foreseen by Aquinas and he, he kind of factors it into his thinking. And there's then there's those who want to use Aquinas as a touch point, but then develop uh, a kind of, um, well, things as ex extreme as um, uh, trying to reconcile Thomism and existentialism and things like that. So you've got so many uh, bewildering array, array of Thomistic thought that for any modern evangelical or reformed person to talk about, you know, Thomistic reformed orthodoxy, well, the first thing you'd have to say is, well, which Thomas are we talking about? Um, which form of Thomism are we talking about? And uh, with which of those groups do um, would they fundamentally um, identify? Um, perhaps just to to, to 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 conclude this, it would be worth saying um, a few things that are a bit more personal about. Aquinas and his connection to, to Aristotle, because he actually begins as more of a Platonizing philosopher. So he's more in the Platonic school. Um, and it's actually his kind of life story that 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 where that leads him on a journey where he ends up in Aristotelianism. Um, he begins actually his studies at the State University of Naples, because he's born in in 1224, 1225, thereabouts. Um, and this is the this university setting is where he becomes acquainted with um, the the Greek philosopher whom Aristotle uh, whom Aquinas actually calls in his um, uh, SCG um, uh, the philosopher. So in his most important work, there really is no other philosopher. He is the philosopher. He's, he's, the very first section, Aquinas is introducing Aristotle as the philosopher, and uh, Naples had served actually as the meeting point for. Uh, Arabic and Western culture, uh, which was preserving Aristotle's writings. A little later, uh, um, Aquinas ends up joining a Dominican order. And then in 1245, he goes to Paris, which is the kind of mecca of the theological world of the time. Um, and he's substantially influenced by um, a thinker there who is still he's still kind of more in this platonizing tradition actually there's a papal ban on aristotle um in paris um at that time um nonetheless that's where uh the influence of aristotle grows on him and then he teaches from about 1260 in various places in italy um 
he's also at the the court of Pope Urban the Fourth, um, who was continuing the efforts of um, Gregory the Ninth to make the Christian world uh, make make known Aristotle in the um, in the in the Christian world. So he in I think now it was about twelve sixty eight. He is called to be a professor in Paris. And now Aquinas has to go and defend his Aristotelian uh, philosophy, his Aristotelianizing, if you will, of Christianity. And what's often not appreciated is that he is he is actually opposed by a lot of professors. Um, there's conservative Franciscans who are oriented much more towards Augustine. There's um, Neoplatonists who oppose Aristotle's philosophy. And in fact, some members of that group actually said that the spirit of Christ cannot rule where the spirit of Aristotle prevails. And I think we actually agree with that. So there wasn't kind of, Nathan, this kind of universal acceptance of Aquinas at the beginning. There was a lot of resistance to his attempts to to, um, baptize Aristotle and synthesize him with Christianity. Although it has to be said that much of that was to do with the fact that these other theologians were profoundly influenced by Plato and wanted to remain in that more Platonizing um, context. So eventually, Pope Gregory actually summons Aquinas back to attend the Council of Leon in Italy, where um, Aquinas actually falls ill, um, uh, and he dies on the 7th of July in 1274 between Rome and Naples. Um, So... He's actually only 49 years old at that point. So he's accomplished a lot. He starts his studies early. He's at this place of uh, great Aristotelian influence in Naples. He slowly comes to his Aristotelian convictions. He ends up having to defend them in Paris, develops his system, um, and then dies at quite a young age. Um, Initially, you know, a lot of his ideas are rejected. Um, So one of his former teachers... um, Albertus Magnus goes back to Paris to defend his now dead disciple. Um, And we see both a Dominican and Franciscan Archbishop of Canterbury opposing Aquinas' writings. But his ideas are basically canonized in 1323. Um, So on the one hand, we can't take the um, we can't take the synthesis thinking of Aquinas for granted because it wasn't taken for granted even back then. But it did take root. Um, And so on the positives, we can say he's an apologist at work in many respects. um, And he's interested in Christian culture. But we would argue he's looking to the wrong source. He's looking to, he's grounding himself um, in a worldview, uh, in a set of religious presuppositions that he wants to try and hold together in this this tension uh, with Christianity that he wants to synthesize with the faith, but which are fundamentally at odds with each other. This form matter motive of warring concepts, you know, this form trying to impose itself on a chaotic matter, a div- divinity principle of reason, the notion that that could be comfortably wedded to the the triune God of Scripture, His creation out of nothing. Um, his law order, creation law order for all things, um, and his um, purposes for creation, creation for redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can see that uh, um, Aquinas is trying to obey two masters. He's now got these two conflicting sources of authority. He's got the Bible on the one hand, 
and he's got Aristotle on the other. And in some respects, you've got to have a bit of pity for the man as he's commissioned to do this. And the, the uh, I mean, he's a brilliant man. And there is no reformational tradition <laughs> to draw on. Um, and you've got the, the twin threats of pagan philosophy and um, a powerful Islam and the spread of Islam. And here he is trying to uh, synthesize these ideas. And he puts so much stock in, in Aristotle. He's the philosopher. Um, there's hardly a chapter of his great work, um, the Summa there, that he doesn't quote Aristotle because he, want, he wants to, uh, he does genuinely want to render Christianity a service, but he's got this false f- philosophical view of the relationship now between faith and reason. And uh, which he's inherited from from uh, the Greeks, and he's got these two sources of authority. He's got faith and revelation on the one hand, and he's got natural reason and the, the Greek philosophers on the other. And he doesn't realize the fatal dangers that are inherent in this um, in this synthesis. Um, and that's the, that's the crisis for um, that's very much the crisis for Aquinas. That's the um, whether he realized it as a crisis or not is another matter. Um, but that's the that's the crisis that his thought throws Christianity into. Um, there's a lot of these would be terms much more familiar to our audience. You know, there's what it leads to is is eisegesis, which is he starts to read in when you read his summa, he starts to read in this Aristotelian framework onto the Bible. And then when he exegetes the Bible, then exegesis, he's reading it out of scripture. So he, he reads it back onto the text, this unbiblical philosophy. And then, of course, he's reading it out. So there's a kind of strange biblicism going on there. Um, and because he's accepted the Greek view of nature, of form and matter, essentially Aquinas' synthesis involves saying we've got nature on the on the one hand viewed in essentially greek terms and then we've got grace in the same way that we've got reason and faith and somehow these have got to be uh wed uh together so what he essentially says is look nature natural reason uh, it, uh man's uh philosophical thinking that that germ of reason that is the true nature of man that isn't radically affected by the fall of man Man may lose an added gift. There's this super, uh, this, this is the idea of the, the additional gift of grace, of faith, uh, that, that man needs to cut, reach perfection, to reach salvation. Um, but that was what he lost at the fall. So that you've got this dualistic idea of creation now with, as he tries to hold together Aristotle and the Bible, what he does is he says, well, um, man was dualistic from the beginning. Nature and grace were there in Eden even before the fall. So you can see that's a very serious mistake. The Bible's understanding of grace is not in opposition to nature or over and above nature. It's in, it's in contradistinction to God's wrath. Um, it's grace because of our sin. Um, so there's a variety of these dualisms that we have often unpicked and unpacked at the Ezra Institute on, on this show that fight, take their root here. Um, because the the philosophy then of um, of the Greeks with their idea of nature, nature becomes the forerunner. It's the doorway. It's the threshold 
to perfection, which comes when the gospel, by grace, somehow restores this gift. So the gospel, um, uh, rather than being as the reformers would have seen it as a restoration, as evangelicalism would see it as a restoration of human nature, Aquinas sees it now as an elevation of human nature by this supernatural gift. So we've got now this two-story um, vision um, of reality. So this nature-grace idea is where the synthesis really happens. Keep Aristotle's view of nature, essentially, um, with some minor modifications, but then add the Christian idea of grace and um, redemption. And um, perhaps we'll have to leave to another week uh, to discuss in more detail now um, the the problems that begin to really emerge from that because it's not scripturally founded. You've got this this um, this synthesis at work that rests on the philosopher Aristotle, and so in a certain sense, although Aquinas's project was to Christianize Aristotle, really um, Christianity is Aristotelized, if that's a mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, it it happens. It is now. <laughs> yeah, it, that's the way that the journey really happens, mm-hmm. r- rather than the 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 other way around. Right, and there's so much there in your comments, Joe, that have massive implications on how we do apologetics, how we defend the faith. What is our starting point? And obviously, that's something we'll have to deal with in a, a future episode. Yeah, but you've left a a number of doors sort of cracked open that, uh, that we can explore in, in future episodes that, uh, that I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting into with, uh, with this topic, Joe and Nate, uh, from all of us here, it's, it's been good to, uh, to be together again. And from all of us, uh, we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things to God alone be the glory This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, and we'll be with you again next week.